Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thank you so much for listening to us today. How are you doing, Ben? I'm, uh... Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a little stressed out, Sarah. Yeah, waves of anxiety are coming off your body. Well, it's just a very busy time. Uh, you just got back from Las Vegas. Yeah, for a business trip. And uh, possibly with a broken elbow, the doctor's appointment later today will determine whether that is accurate. Yeah. And then my birthday is the day this episode theoretically comes out. And we have a wedding reception to go to the weekend after that. So we celebrated my birthday the weekend before, which also was the same weekend as Father's Day, which made the weekend a little bit busy in terms of doing all that and prepping to make this episode. And then on top of that and our other like regular um, commitments of, you know, friends and games and work and all that, we're having the electrical wiring at Castle Scream Scene redone because it turns out that the wiring done in the 1660s, you know, <laughs> is is not up to code. Uh, We're still going to make sure that uh, the characteristic flickering mm. is maintained. Yeah. Uh, we'll be having special words with the electricians, but... Uh, but, you know, the insurance companies demand a certain standard these days. And, well, even a vampire and a Frankenstein can't stand against... Uh, please, Frankenstein was my father. Mm. Uh, <laughs> that involves like a lot of work here at the house just to get it ready for the electricians to come in, and I'm just there's just so much to do, uh, so I'm I'm stressed about that. I am excited for this episode though, and I'm hoping I can kind of just like settle into the groove of letting myself enjoy that, you know, settle into the groove of enjoying Peeping Tom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How are you feeling about all these various things, Sarah? Uh, I have been burning the candle at both ends for the last month, so this is just what I've been doing. Mm-hmm. How's uh, your elbow feel? Oh, it. yeah. We'll see what the doctor says. I don't know. I am excited for today's episode, though. Tell the folks at home what we are watching. Well, Sarah, we are watching Peeping Tom from 1960, directed by Michael Powell. You had a lot of research. There's a lot of really big names in this movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, so other than the like lead actor, I have made the conscious choice to basically ignore all the other male actors in this cast and just talk about him and the women because I needed to draw the line somewhere. Yeah. But the place to start in talking about Peeping Tom is with the writer. And the screenplay for this film was written by Leopold Samuel Marx, who was born in 1920 in London, England. He was the son of Benjamin Marx, who was the co-owner of the famous antiquarian bookseller Marx & Co. That co doesn't stand for company. It stands for Cohen, mm. uh, just for the record. And uh, growing up, Leopold you know, worked in his father's shop. It exposed him to all sorts of people and ideas. 
uh, and he became interested in cryptography after reading Edgar Allan Poe's The Gold Bug. He gained experience in deciphering codes uh, by figuring out his father's price codes for the books he sold. Oh. And this interest in cryptography would continue when he joined the war effort in 1942. He uh, worked as a cryptographer, obviously, and he was very skilled at it. He could complete decipherments that usually took a week in a matter of hours. Wow. So he was assigned to Special Operations Executive, SOE, um, which was the UK's commando spec ops division during the war. In fact, SOE kind of invented that style of warfare. While at SOE, Marx phased out the use of well-known poems as code keys in favor of one-time pads and original poems written by the cryptographers. He trained staff how to decipher garbled messages, and various incidents from his service formed the basis for later movies and plays. Very cool. After the war, Marx went on to write stage plays such as The Girl Who Couldn't Quite and Cloudburst. He was interested in doing a story about scoptophilia and conceived of the notion of a peeping Tom style character who uses his camera to murder young women and gets off on the photos of the fear in their eyes right before they die that he takes. Um, and he based the psychology in the film on like Freudian ideas in the story, our cameraman scoptophilic serial killer was the son of a famous scientist. And this famous scientist father experimented on his son uh, to like study the effects of fear and Marx based the protagonist's kind of fraught relationship with his famous father on his own upbringing as Benjamin Marx's son, and then conceived of the killer's psychosis as being sexual in motivation. So we've thrown around this word scoptophilia a few times. What does that mean, Sarah? Yeah, so you've been saying scoptophilia. I'll be saying scopophilia. It's the same thing. There's like a long debate whether the, it was like the name difference is the result of like a misspelling on someone's part or like, you know, someone's hand blurred the ink or something. Okay. But it's considered the same thing. Okay. Scopophilia is the pleasure in looking. Hmm. Like voyeurism. Yeah. And there's like that sexual element to it so it's specifically you know the sexual pleasure of looking at objects of eroticism um the key with thinking about scopophilia versus like i'm just going to look over there mm. is that the pleasure is sexual mm -hmm. it comes from sigmund freud he coined the term schaulust uh in 1905 ish kind of mean that sexual pleasure in looking, but he describes it as being tied to curiosity and Freud. I hate going into Freud because a lot of his stuff is like... Fraught? Fraught. Freud is fraught. Um, but he looks at child development and he sees like five phases, mm -hmm. 
all of which are like, you read it and you're like, the fuck? Mm-hmm. What the fuck? But, you know, whatever. The idea of the shell lust and curiosity is like when you're a child and even when you're an adult, you look around because you're curious. For a child, the development is because like it's looking around and it's like, what is that? What is me? And identifying like what is the child versus what is other than the child. As I said, we all kind of engage in this curiosity Um I think a really good example of like a, a non-sexual, like, but wanting to look kind of curiosity is uh, what my family always calls looky lose uh, when we're driving past car accidents. Oh. Um, because everyone slows down because they want to see what's happened. Um, there's that element of like the curiosity and looking and the uh, kind of pleasure in looking like you want to see what's going on. You could even see it tied to staring at a provocatively dressed woman. Mm -hmm. I've just come from Vegas. Lots of people, but specifically women, are dressed in a load of different outfits, whether they are there so you will want to take your photo with them and they'll get some money because they're dressed as showgirls, or just people being people dressed in things that you probably wouldn't wear anywhere else. And the, the urge to look... Not necessarily ogle, but it kind of leads to ogling. That's all to say that, like, we all do that. Mm. But when it leads into scopophilia and that, like, psychosexual fetish is when it's, like, a goal of sexual pleasure um, and to the point of it being the only way that you can achieve that kind of sexual pleasure. Mm. So that's where you lead into, like, fetishism and stuff. Um, For the record, you do you. I'm not here to, like yuck your yum um but that's where this is coming from with freud and into this like psychological understanding of what they call scopophilia now i would be remiss to not bring in uh something called the male gaze i won't go into too much depth here because it comes in later in like film criticism in like the 70s but before i dive into the male gaze we've seen some movies already that play with the camera as point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, we saw it as early as like 1927's Cat in the Canary, where it was like a point of view shot of the camera moving through the hallways. We've seen it in, say, 1951's Bride of the Gorilla, where it was the camera moving through the jungle as if it was us moving through the jungle. So a play of like, whose perspective are we seeing? Is it the audiences? Is it the gorillas? Is it the directors? Like whose point of view are we actually seeing? Um, and we've even seen a case of like an identification of the camera in um, 1955's Dementia and how it the camera is subjective but passive and creating that surreal experience of that movie. A ton of examples of like how camera movement emphasizes the story uh even if you think about like handheld camera in like a movie like uh cloverfield where it's like oh you're supposed to feel like you're on the ground because it's all handheld camera and playing with your point of view in in that way there's a long history of film playing with that in 1975 a film critic named laura mulvey coined the term male gaze to kind of describe the way that the camera is used in a patriarchal society. So 
she very much used Freudian and Lacanian psychoanalysis in film, which is why I think it's relevant to bring up here, um, even though she's writing in the 70s and we're in 1960. Um, but I still think it's relevant, but we'll get more into it in the discussion, I think. So the male part of the male gaze is in relation to like the patriarchal society, as in who has been the creator of the visual art. Uh, typically, it's been cis men who is seen as the audience of that art typically it's like the audience is going to be assumed to be the same as the creator therefore cis male and in depictions of women um as well as other genders but we'll stick with women for now um the female body tends to be objectified in media you see it in advertisements and film but it can even be described in literature even sculptures the best example in literature is like that ongoing joke of a male author describing a female character coming down the stairs of her boobs boobily boobed into the room. Yeah. Um, just a little parody there. But by and large, what Mulvey is trying to get at is the idea that there is a passive role of the object viewed in film and um, that viewed object wanting to be represented in the way that makes them the most pleasurable to look at. So in the case of a woman's body, it's like, okay, well, how can we make sure that this woman fits the beauty standards of the time so she is the most pleasurable to look at? She ties that to scopophilia and film because of that, like, looking and the pleasure in looking, um, though it doesn't necessarily relate to, like, the psychosexual disorder. She's just using the same term. And I think it's worthwhile to note that, like, the male gaze was coined in 1975, but the idea of creating, like, the object you are viewing to make it pleasurable to view, therefore beautiful, therefore this specific kind of idealized version uh, has been commented on throughout history. You even see examples in, like, the 1800s with regards to sculptures. Of course, it's beyond visual depiction as well. Mulvey kind of describes it as this like active versus passive division of uh, she describes it as a division of labor, but basically how the narrative structure is. And we're all very familiar with that, even with some of the movies that we've seen that are like B films and like schlocky, where it's like the guy gets to be action and the girl gets to be passive and rescued. That's a very overly simplified thing, but that is kind of the best way to illustrate the point. So that's what the male gaze is about. And I think it's relevant in this film because this film is about scopophilia and the idea of this guy behind a camera being active to the point of killing these women and these women being victims of that. Um, there's a lot more written about the male gaze and scopophilia in regards to the camera um, Martin Scorsese has said some things about like how the best way to learn about film is to watch this movie. Oh, and Ben's pointing to his notebook that he's going to get into that. So I'll stop there. But um, there's a lot of stuff written about like the camera as uh, being an aggressor on the screen and then how that can also pass guilt onto the audience as to what you're seeing. But we'll get into all of that in the discussion, I'm sure. Um, I just wanted to provide a little bit more context, even though that male gaze context might not necessarily be what the audience is familiar with. So, um, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> no, 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 you're, that's very good. Um, so as someone who, you know, studies film, who has made film, you know, who has studied 
both film from like a critical sense, but also on how to make it. I've always identified myself as a very visual person, Mm. right? And I take a lot of pleasure out of like viewing things and visual stuff is very important to me. Pictures are very important to me, right? Would you consider yourself like a very visual person? I would consider myself a very sensory person because mm. there's visual, but for me, there's also an element of touch. I really like textures and oral as an auditory, mm-hmm. uh, not mouth. I'm not yeah. like going around licking things. Right. Uh, <laughs> so definitely more like uh, a lot of my other senses as well, more than just visual. And okay. I do like, I think I made it clear in what I was saying, but just to put a big, strong asterisk here, I'm not saying that people who look at porn are deviants. Um, because it's not that like the act of looking and getting sexual pleasure out of that is wrong. It's more, this is the way that it's described in psychology. Mm -hmm. You have to have words to describe things. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to make sure. Imparting labels to stuff doesn't imply a judgment value. Yeah. Yeah. There is a lot of literature on like scopophilia and it being tied to shame and Mm. guilt on the part of the viewer. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I I just, you know, there's a lot out there, but I just wanted to make it clear that at least my standpoint is you do you. (laughs) Well, and that shame and guilt, right, even comes back to the idea of the peeping Tom, the idea that you're looking when you're not supposed to be looking and that makes you uh, gross right? So the the interesting thing about the male gaze, the thing that I think is important when you're thinking about the male gaze is you can like, I don't know, point to like a music video of a sexy pop star in scant outfit dancing around and be like, oh, this is the male gaze. And sure, but like you're not, in my opinion, you're not really saying anything at that point. I think yeah, the, everyone participates in the male gaze. It's not a gendered thing. The male part, like I said, is describing the patriarchal society. What, what I'm trying to get at is that mm. as a critic, if you are looking at media, if you're wanting to be less shallow in mm. your criticism, like what's important to realize is that male gaze can be unconscious. Yes. Right. It's much more significant to look at a scene where it's like, a dialogue scene between, I don't know, like a lady lawyer and like a judge or something in like a serious drama and ask yourself, why is she like lit the way she is in this scene? Why is the camera positioned like slightly above her and looking down so we can see the cleavage in her blouse that's like open to the third button for some reason? Like this isn't a sexual scene. She's not supposed to be sexy in this scene. Why are we framing her in such a way that we make sure that her bust is in the shot, this kind of thing. That's, I think, where it's important to know about and recognize male gaze because in so many cases it is unconscious. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the thing about film as a medium that's interesting to me is each of us as human beings live in our own heads Mm -hmm. and we have our own view on the world and our own perspective. And we each experience the world slightly differently, you know, to the extent that people go into like brain in a jar, what is reality kind of weed philosophy about it. But like (laughs) the interesting thing about making a film 
is you are deciding what the audience looks at. You are deciding what the audience hears. You're deciding how they experience the world of the film. And in that way, you can give a subjective experience, how I see the world, to someone else mm-hmm. in a way that you can't do otherwise, even just by telling someone about something. Because even describing something, they will translate that into how they would see those things. But with a film, you can actually put someone in your shoes in a way. The interesting psychological effect that that creates that is relevant to Peeping Tom is that if you're asking, you know, whose point of view is the camera in a movie, ultimately it's the audience's. Mm -hmm. It's the window through which you are viewing the story. But the people who crafted that view were the filmmakers. And so a film, when you watch it, creates a identification of the filmmakers with the audience because one is imparting a POV to the other and they are sharing that POV. And the implications that can have for voyeurism or scopophilia or the male gaze are what becomes interesting in a film like Peeping Tom. And one of the reasons why the male gaze becomes a problem is because it is based on this assumption of the identity of the filmmaker and the identity of the audience. Mm -hmm. And when there's an identification of that POV between everyone, where it's sort of safe to assume that the person watching your movie likes looking at the same things that you do, then everything is hunky dory. But you know, the unconscious bias you have to confront as a filmmaker is that the male gaze you impart on your film isn't going to be comfortable for everyone in your audience because there are going to be people who don't identify with that gaze watching your movie. And when that disconnect happens, it causes that audience member to be taken out of the movie. This implied, this inherent identification of filmmaker with audience that movies create um, is at the heart of a lot of the criticism that this movie engendered. Yeah, and likely why, uh, as you'll get into, Michael Powell's career tanked after this. Yeah, so Leopold Marx was, you know, working on this idea, this idea of exploring scopophilia, um, this idea of exploring father-son relationships, this idea of looking at like this sexually motivated killer and how that interacts with the camera and all of this. And meanwhile, filmmaker Michael Powell had been wanting to make a movie about the life of Freud. Uh, But when he heard that director John Huston was working on the same project, he switched gears, wishing to make something else, but with a similar focus on psychology. Marx told Powell about Peeping Tom, and the director decided it had to be his next project, and they partnered together to make the movie. Now, Michael Powell was born the son of a farmer in Kent in 1905. His first job out of college was as a banker, but he quickly decided that banking wasn't for him and went into film. Take that, business bros. (laughs) (laughs) He joined the industry in 1925 as an all-purpose gopher, rising to stills photographer on films like Rex Ingram's The Magician and Alfred Hitchcock's Blackmail. He started writing title cards, then moved into screenwriting, 
And then by 1931, he was directing Quota Quickies. Uh, he made 23 films from 1931 to 1936. Wow. All just kind of quickly churned out. Yeah. Quota Quickie. Junk. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, in 1937, he directed a film called The Edge of the World, which was the first film that he regarded as being like a personal project mm. that he put something of himself into that he was proud of, that kind of thing. Uh, on the strength of that film, he was hired by producer Alexander Korda to work on The Spy in Black in 1939, where he was first paired with screenwriter Emmerich Pressburger. After making Contraband in 1940 and The 49th Parallel in 1941 uh, together, Powell and Pressburger formed a production company partnership called The Archers, with their films credited as being produced, written, and directed by both of them. Powell's first film post-Pressburger was Honeymoon, a light romantic picture whose main attractions were location shooting in Spain and Spanish music and dancing. As a director of proud and critic-pleasing films of beauty and emotional sensitivity, Peeping Tom was a major shift in tone for Powell. Or at least it was perceived that way. The fact of the matter is that, like, the films of the Archers had always kind of, like, traded a little bit in exploring darker emotions as well. Like, I'm thinking of the Red Shoes in mm -hmm. particular. Like, they really dig into the psychology of the characters without letting it overwhelm the picture. Right. Um, but, you know, I think there's sort of this... This almost like classist kind of armor that happens to stuff when it's like, this is a movie about ballet versus like, this is a movie about pornography. Um, <laughs> One of these things is considered differently in culture. Right, exactly. In terms of like how critics regard these movies. The film was produced by Nat Cohen of Anglo Amalgamated. And it forms the second in a trilogy of pictures that Anglo Amalgamated did that's not really like an official trilogy. It's something like critics came up with um, called the Sadian Trilogy, uh, which is considered to have begun with Horrors of the Black Museum in 1959. Oh, yeah. We, we didn't hate that movie. <laughs> it just needed more. Unlike that film, however, Peeping Tom wasn't intended to feel anything like hammer horror. Mm. Um, instead, it was to be something new. British stars like Dirk Bogard and Lawrence Harvey were considered for the lead role, but ultimately the seedy subject matter sort of kept big name male leads away. So Powell cast his friend, German actor Karl Heinz Bohm, in the lead role. Born in 1928, Bohm was the son of famous Austrian orchestra conductor Karl Bohm. He avoided World War II by emigrating to Switzerland in 1939 to attend school, and soon after the war, he went to Vienna to take acting lessons, beginning his film career in 1948. In the 1950s, he gained great fame playing Emperor Franz Joseph I in the Sisi trilogy, which starred uh, Romy Schneider. However, after those movies, he found himself kind of typecast as dashing, 
Prince Charming kind of characters, and so he left for England to break the mold. Despite the character of Mark Lewis in Peeping Tom being written as English, uh, Bohm made the choice to portray the character with a German accent, uh, interpreting him as having grown up traumatized by the Nazi regime and interpreting his father as like a Nazi scientist. Um, Bohm saw the character as being like sympathetic, uh, being a character who audiences could take pity on. I am a little disappointed that the main character's name is not Tom. Mm. Missed opportunity. But it is Mark and the writer's name is Mark's. So yes. Now in the 1980s, Bohm quit acting to engage in humanitarian work in Africa, spending millions of Deutschmarks to build schools and fountains in Ethiopia. And for his charity work, he was made an honorary citizen of Ethiopia in 2003. Wow. He passed away in 2014 after battling Alzheimer's. After his death, uh, his first daughter, Cece, came out with a memoir stating that her father had touched her inappropriately as a teen and that her mother had prostituted her to German high society. Well, fuck. You just wish people could not be terrible. For the scenes showing Mark Lewis being experimented on by his father as a child, Powell plays the father himself with his real son as the young boy and his real mother as the mother. Oh my God, what? Some critics took this to mean that Powell was endorsing the father's actions in the story and called using his son in these scenes uh, child abuse, which his son laughed off as ridiculous. It is called acting. It is a choice to have it be your own son who is you would assume not a trained actor like I, a child actor you, you think is like trained to understand that this is acting this is not real life whereas that line could be blurred for an amateur actor and even further so with dad it's just like it raises questions that didn't need to be raised mm. so totally see where everyone's coming from here i see i'm definitely more on his son's side who is like hey guys it's a movie but as long as he like the kid was able to be like actually dad no this is too much rather than like the dad being like no it's show business baby like i mean i I don't know what like a british child's ability to speak up to their father in 1960 was but i'm saying that like the kid turned out fine did he though (laughs) Anyways, continue. I'm sorry. Uh, The film's premise necessitates a large cast of beautiful women. Uh, Anna Massey, born in Sussex in 1937, was the daughter of British actress Adrian Allen and Canadian actor Raymond Massey, uh, who we saw in Arsenic and Old Lace in the Boris Karloff role. Mm -hmm. She's also the niece of Vincent Massey, who was the governor general of Canada in the 1950s. And she debuted on stage at age 17 in 1955. She was acclaimed for her voice. She had like this very crystal clear English speaking voice. She appeared in John Ford's film Gideon's Day in 1958. Peeping Tom was her second movie. 
She would later appear in Alfred Hitchcock's Frenzy in 1972, as well as in the anthology horror film Vault of Horror in 1973, and she passed away in 2011. Moira Shearer had been discovered by the Archers for the Red Shoes in 1948. Born Moira Shearer King in Scotland in 1926, she began training in ballet at age 10, continuing throughout the war. For this reason, she was chosen to star as the lead ballerina in The Red Shoes, which would remain her best-known role. She retired from ballet in 1953, but continued on as an actress, appearing in Tales of Hoffman for The Archers, and a number of other films and plays throughout the 1950s. Keeping Tom would be her last dramatic film role. It's poor reception, kind of put a chill on her career, Uh, though she would appear performing ballet again in 1961's Black Tights, and then she would actually be brought out of retirement for a BBC ballet TV movie called A Simple Man in 1987. Her husband, Ludovic Kennedy, was knighted for his contributions to journalism, so she passed away as Lady Kennedy in 2006. Maxine Audley, only 14 years older than Anna Massey, plays her character's mother. Uh, She was born in London in 1923. She trained for the stage and made her debut in 1940 with film roles beginning in 1948. Shirley Ann Field, born in 1938, had been appearing in small film parts since 1955, with her first sizable role being in Horrors of the Black Museum as Angela, the uh, fiancé. Her big break would come in 1960, not from Peeping Tom, but from three other films she would appear in that year, making her something of like an it girl for a while when like there was a period when every theater had like one of her movies in it. Wow, she must have been very, very busy. Yeah, uh, the three films that year that she was in um, that were popular were The Entertainer, Saturday Night and Saturday Morning, and Man in the Moon. Pamela Green, born in 1929, was a popular glamour model and dancer in London in the 1950s. Her success as a model led to her becoming managing director for Camera Magazine, which was the first glamour magazine in the UK and kind of the top one for many years. Uh, And she continued modeling uh, throughout the 50s and 60s and late into her career. She appears nude in the moments leading up to her character's death, though for how many shots she is nude depended on which country you were seeing the movie in, ranging from more in Europe to none in America. Uh, Yeah, that tracks. Cinematography for Peeping Tom is by Otto Heller, a Czech cinematographer who was... um, Jewish. He was born in 1896 and was a very um, well-known working cameraman in film in Czechoslovakia. And then, of course, Czechoslovakia was um, taken over by Nazi Germany, and he had to flee uh, in 1939. Uh, He became a British citizen in 1945. Uh, Some of the films that he shot once he was in Britain include Queen of Spades in Mm. 1949, The Lady Killers in 1955, 
Richard III in 1955, Silent Enemy in 1958, um, The Ipcris File in 1965, Alfie in 1966. That's a great movie. Yeah. Uh, so pretty cool guy. Music for Peeping Tom is by composer Brian Easdale, um, a British composer who was best known for doing the score for the Red Shoes. Mm, okay. But he'd also done a lot of the other Powell and Pressburger films, such as Black Narcissus, The Elusive Pimpernel, um, etc. Peeping Tom was released in London on April 7th, 1960. Its themes of sex and violence made it highly controversial, and respectable critics rejected the film outright. Yeah. Um, The popular style at the time in the UK for movies was kind of like this kitchen sink realism that had come out of like the European docudrama movement, and Peeping Tom was very lurid among its other objectionable qualities. Reviewers declared Powell's career to be over. Um, in some reviews, he was likened to the Marquis de Sade. Oh my goodness. So that's where the name, the term sadist comes from for folks. One critic quoted, The only really satisfactory way to dispose of Peeping Tom would be to shovel it up and flush it swiftly down the nearest sewer. Other critic comments included that the film was more depressing than a leper colony, the most disgusting film I had ever seen, beastly, uh, etc. So, I mean, I haven't seen it, so we can discuss this, but we've seen killers before. Like, I'm even thinking of uh, that last movie, um, The Flesh and the Fiends, or whatever it's called. Like, which, I mean, people did object to as well, but it wasn't this strong. So I wonder if there's something here about that, like, film perspective that yes. we were talking about. Absolutely, that was the issue. Um, it was generally considered that by making the killer this voyeur who looks through the camera and then showing us his POV through his camera, the audience became identified with the director who became identified with the killer. Mm. And the movie was kind of seen as making, therefore, the audience complicit in the voyeurism and murders in the movie. And this was considered to be very troubling and disturbing and objectionable um, for people. The backlash uh, almost ended Powell's career entirely. It didn't quite end it entirely. Um, He never made another feature-length theatrical film in Britain again. Um, He would do some other work, mostly in Australia, uh, for the rest of his career. Most Anglo-amalgamated films were released by AIP, in the U.S., uh, but Peeping Tom made it five days in theaters in London before it was pulled from theaters over wow. the sort of furor around it. And AIP decided they didn't want to fuck with that and refused to carry the film. And it wasn't released in the U.S. until 1962 uh, when it was released by Aster Pictures, who marketed it in the horror, art film, and exploitation markets all at the same time to just try and find... Where it would fit, Uh, it failed to find an audience in any of those markets. In New York, it played in one theater in Alphabet City. And overall, the film was a major financial failure. That's interesting that it didn't do well 
like those few years later, because after that we would have had things like Psycho, we would have had some other movies that are looking at voyeurism. Mm -hmm. So there's just something about this movie that goes too far for folks of, of this time. I guess, yeah. Over time, the film, which was cut down by about 20 minutes and shown in a black and white 16 millimeter print, became kind of like a cult movie in the seedy theater circuit in the 1970s, where it gained the attention and appreciation of Martin Scorsese, Mm. who decided to hunt down and acquire an uncut 35 millimeter print. In 1978, Uh, He allowed that print to be used as the basis for a re-release of the film by Corinth Films. And that re-release led to a critical reappraisal of the movie, which saw it praised for its psychological themes, its exploration of voyeurism, and its influence on future horror films, gaining it the epithet of the British Psycho. Mm, Even though it comes before. Mm -hmm. Scorsese said that everything that can be said about filmmaking is said in Eight and a Half and Peeping Tom. Uh, Quote, from studying them, you can discover everything about people who express themselves through making film. I kind of agree with him, but I do think that the point of view he's expressing is biased. Uh, Because I do think that if you look at Eight and a Half and Peeping Tom, if you're thinking about like how to think about people who make film through those two movies, you need to read people as men. Sure. Yeah. By the time he passed away in 1990, Powell had seen peeping Tom gain this reputation as one of the best horror pictures ever made, but he was rueful that this reappraisal came too late to benefit him in any way, really. So how are we watching this? Peeping Tom is available on Blu-ray from Optimum, releasing and you can stream it on Tubi. Ah, uh, Tubi. Uh is it like the full version on Yeah, Tubi? yeah. Well, it's a restored version. It's yeah. the most restored version we got. Cool. Well, folks, hopefully you can get onto Tubi and watch along. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude and when we come back, we will discuss Peeping Tom from 1960, directed by Michael Powell. See you on the other side, everybody. <laughs> Welcome back to Scream Scene. We're talking about Peeping Tom from 1960, directed by Michael Powell. Sarah, what did you think? Wow. (laughs) Um, I did not anticipate this movie going as hard as it did. Mm. And I also didn't anticipate how similar to modern police procedurals, Mm -hmm. like the CSI stuff, um, even like... I saw parallels with like American Psycho. I did not anticipate that. Mm-hmm. Um, this was your second time seeing this? Yes. What do you think now that you have kind of the history of the horror genre behind you? I think that, like you said, it's it's really interesting to see, you know, that we're seeing kind of one of the first films of this type, like the psychological serial killer movie. Um, but we've already got so many 
facets of that genre like fully formed here where we've got like the fully sympathetic killer who has the backstory of abusive parents who kind of like has a near redemption by like an innocent character. Um, the thing that really mm. struck me watching it this time is that you don't really get red dragon without peeping Tom. Yeah. And I think this is also, <laughs> you brought up red dragon. Uh, this is a great example for showing like why this is a horror movie and silence of the lambs is not right. Cause it's, you can see the parallels, but their focuses are completely different. Mm -hmm. But yeah, like even right down to the use of like cameras and the obsession with seeing, right? Absolutely. So let's talk about the story. Sure. Before diving in, I'll just give a content warning about uh, violence against women. I know that that's kind of like par for the course for horror movies, but this one goes uh, not necessarily graphically, but the impact is a lot. Uh, I also just want to say that at the beginning of the first half, I said uh, that I might have a broken elbow. Now that we are recording the second half, I have seen the doctor, and I do not have a broken elbow. So go me. Hooray. Hooray. Okay, so Peeping Tom, it opens with us seeing through a camera viewfinder, basically. Um, and we are seeing and approaching a sex worker. And we follow her up to her room, and then we also get to see her murder. As the credits roll, we see a man from behind in the dark, kind of re-watching the film that we just saw, but it's in black and white. So it's clearly what he had filmed on his own camera. So very strong opening. This man is Mark Lewis, who returns to the scene of the crime to film the police taking the sex worker out of her apartment. We learn that Mark is an aspiring director who currently works as uh, an assistant camera operator, I think is what a focus puller is focus, what he specifically yeah, says. Yeah, uh, but he's a um, camera assistant. Camera assistant. Okay. And he works at like the, the film production studio that's here. And he also has a side gig taking softcore porn photos of uh, some models at a, uh, a nearby... I forget what they called it, but like a news magazine shop, basically. Yeah, news agent is the, the word they use in the movie, but yeah. He is shy and reclusive, uh, but he's fascinated with things visually, particularly if they happen to be sort of grotesque, uh, which we kind of see when um, he goes to do some model photos, and one of the women there, um, she has kind of this face disfigurement on the side of her face, and he like has this overwhelming urge to film her with his own film camera rather than like with a photography camera. When he comes home, um, the people in his apartment building are having a party because it's Helen's 21st birthday. Um, Helen is, uh, she sees him coming in and she does try to befriend him. She brings him up some cake and, you know, tries to like get to know him. In their encounter in his flat, we learn a bit more about Mark uh, basically that the building was his father's and that makes Mark their landlord, but he rents it out through an agency. So he doesn't actually have to deal with people. Um, that his dad was a psychologist whose specialty was studying fear. Um, and that uh, his dad used Mark for experiments and filmed Mark at nearly every moment of his life. He's never known really privacy um, to the point where he's like, finds keys 
odd to carry around because he was never allowed to lock any doors. We learn later that the entire house has like secret microphones, that sort of thing. In learning this, we do see a filmed experiment on young Mark, where like we keep seeing like this light in his face, and then also um, at one point a lizard goes into his bed. That's the extent of the experiments that we see. In which case, I am with the son of William Powell laughing off, like, "Oh, I I was abused because I participated in filming these experiments." Like, no, there's nothing there. When Mark goes to work at the film studio, he arranges with an actress named Vivian, who is basically an extra, a stand-in for the main lead actress, uh, to basically stay late for doing some filming. Uh, It's kind of unclear what Vivian believes it to be, um, but I think it's supposed to be kind of like a screen test and just kind of like a... A bit of film she can add to her demo reel, basically. Yeah, it's it's. I think the idea is basically him directing her, doing some acting that can potentially show off that she can be more than a stand-in and show off that he can be more than a focus puller. Absolutely. In actuality, Mark is trying to perfectly film the next part of his uh, documentary, hmm. which is uh, Killing Vivian. And this is when we actually get to see a bit of the method of murder. His camera has uh, a tripod and one of the legs pokes out and has like a knife at the end. I don't know if it's actually a knife or just the fact that it has a pointy end once you take off the ball socket because tripods are like that. So I don't know if he's tripped out this tripod, but in any case, he uses it to kill her. As he gets closer to Helen, her blind mother becomes kind of curious as well as suspicious all at once. Uh, She can uncannily tell when Mark is peering in through the window. She seems able to perceive something about Mark that he doesn't really share. And um, I think he's also nervous about the fact that she's blind. And with him being so fascinated with visuals, it's a little odd for him. But he and Helen go out. She even persuades him to leave the camera behind. A little bit more about Helen, so she works at a public library as a librarian, but she also writes children's stories, and she's writing this new book about a magic camera, and she's hoping to collaborate with Mark to help photograph some of these, like, magic photos or something. Um, So there's, like, that work aspect, but also, you know, they're young, they're having fun together. They return home, and Mark goes up to watch the film that he's made of Vivian dying, and it turns out Helen's mom is up there in his development lab. She explains that, you know, I've come up here often because you don't lock your door, Um, and she kind of confronts him about, like, what is it that you watch every night? Again, she's blind, so she doesn't know what's on the film, but she knows something weird is going on because he has some sort of fascination. He does this every night. In the midst of their confrontation, he uh, has Vivian's death scene playing, and he realizes that it actually isn't perfect. It doesn't fully capture the death in her eyes. And so he's completely overtaken with grief because that means that he has to do it again. Helen's mom is right there and is almost the victim, um, but he manages to kind of control himself and... She says, like, she, it's clear that she understands that she was in danger, but she doesn't quite know to what extent. And so she says that you need to get help. Otherwise, you're not seeing Helen ever again. Now, during this time, um, a little bit earlier in the film as well, uh, we see that Vivian's body is discovered on set. And Mark is thrilled to have the chance to kind of film some of the 
um, investigation, the finding of the body, the police looking at the body, some of the interviews, the cops know that this death is linked to the sex worker's death because of the way they were murdered and they both have a very gruesome look on their face. However, they don't have any leads. They do do interviews with all of the staff at the studio. Mark gets through scot-free, so they don't really have any leads. So they plan, okay, you know, we'll follow different people from the set just to see what they go get up to. But Mark isn't um, particularly targeted. Since finding the body, the lead actress is a little of a always in a frazzled state. Uh, don't blame her. Um, so they, the studio has brought a psychiatrist on set to kind of help the actress. And so Mark approaches him to see about getting the help that Helen's mother kind of insisted on. Turns out this doctor is familiar with Mark's father's work and they have a, a little bit of a conversation. Mark is like, you know, my dad had been working on um, scoptophilia and the peeping Tom disorder before he died. And the doctor's like, oh, interesting. Yes, it would take um, maybe a couple years to cure that. Uh, not long at all, though. But Mark is clearly disappointed that it would take a few years. As I said, the cops are following everyone, so they do follow Mark um, to see where he goes. He goes to the library to kind of watch Helen from afar, and then he ends up going to that newsagent magazine place because he's arranged to take some photos of model Millie because he needs to kill someone. And so he, he goes up and does that. And I think part of that is because he thinks that if he can finish this film, he'll have something that he can show that is his to Helen. But also, he, I think he thinks that maybe finishing the film will cure me in some sort of way. As he heads home, we see Helen head up to his development lab to drop off an early draft of her book. And she ends up turning on the projector because she's, you know, curious to see what he's been working on. And she is horrified to see that it's him murdering girls just a point of order uh when we see that helen is watching these films the camera sticks on helen's reaction not us seeing what it is she's watching mark comes in as she's watching this and he tells her like don't don't let me see you be afraid otherwise i'm going to have to film you um i promise not to film you um and he kind of reveals that like when he filmed these girls as he's murdering them, he has a round mirror attachment to his camera. So the women are seeing their deaths in front of them. And that's why they have that terrified look on their face. Now, the police, like I said, had been following him and saw that he went up to the news agent's office and then realized later Millie was murdered there. Clearly, Mark is who we need to go after. So the cops are coming in. And closing in on Mark and he hears the sirens and he's like, okay, time to film my own death. He has everything arranged and he basically kills himself in the same manner uh, as he killed the women of impaling himself with the tripod, etc. Police race up and they find Mark dead and Helen crying over him. And that's kind of the end. So as a film, I think Peeping Tom is pretty brilliant. Mm -hmm. um it's beautifully shot uh amazing you know composition uh lighting great use of color great use of shadow um everything just looks fantastic which i mean it would kind of have to be yeah like if you're doing a movie that's entirely about like 
the pleasure of looking at things and that is all about like cameras and filming things and getting everything just so uh, I think you'd be letting down the material if it wasn't well <laughs> shot. Yeah, I don't think that there's anything bad you can say about the way this movie was crafted down to like the score, mm-hmm. the lighting, mm-hmm. the acting, the direction, mm-hmm. everything. It's beautiful. It's beautiful to watch. The uh, editing is really, really on point. Yes, it does a really good job. Uh, lots of really great match cuts. Uh, yeah, well acted, directed. I really love the music. Um, everything. So I found, you know, coming back to those questions of like subjectivity, uh, I found that like everything this movie was doing put you within the mindset of Mark. Yeah. Like within his psychosis, within his anxiety, like the bit where he goes on the date with Helen but doesn't have his camera. Like you can feel his anxiety about not having it. Or there's like a great scene where he's being interviewed by police and one of the inspectors like takes his camera from him to kind of look at it. He keeps reaching for it to get it back. Yeah. And the cop is just like, oh, like, is this the lens? Is this how you pull focus? Like, he's just curious about the thing itself. But you can feel Mark's anxiety about not having it in his hands, right? So yeah, everything on like a technical level is really great. But I think... Honestly, the most brilliant thing about this movie is the screenplay. The writing, like I said in the beginning of the second half, like it truly feels in line with modern shows, modern movies. And I think it did a good job of digging into the psychology of Mark. I appreciated the element of pity and sympathy that both the screenplay and the actor brought into Mark. The screenplay is where... Absolutely everything is on theme. Yes. This theme of seeing. The dialogue always comes back to it. The least observant characters are the victims because they don't know what's happening until it's too late. But even then, they're watching their own deaths, right? Everyone's always looking at things until we get to Helen's mom, who can't see and is therefore like immune to... Like, I think part of why she isn't killed is because Mark can't capture the look in her face because she can't see it. Yeah. Right? And these themes of seeing and observation, uh, Mark was observed his whole life, right? Yes. Uh, His documentary that ends with his own suicide on camera is really a completion of his father's work, right? Of, like, filming himself every moment of the day and seeing what the effect of that is on him, right? Like he's finishing that project. Yeah. I mean, I I think we'll get into this a little bit later in the discussion, but it's very interesting to think about our current culture and surveillance culture, as it's sometimes called, and the stories you hear about uh, kids who were growing up uh, with every moment of their lives captured on smartphones now mm-hmm. having a difficult relationship with their parents as a result. It, it's very <laughs> thematic in that way, but obviously that's kind of looking ahead. Yeah. I mean, even the police this time around who I've been recently criticizing some of these British films for the police being a little bit like appendixes. Um, yeah. But like the police here fit into the theme because the police are voyeurs as well. They watch, the lives of others, an investigation into things is like 
you know, again, another form of observation, right? And I appreciated that they weren't incompetent. They are like behind. Yeah. Uh, so they, they only at the end, are they able to catch up with the killer, but they aren't bumbling idiots. They aren't, I kept thinking about, um, eyes without a face where, mm. You felt like the cops were vestigial. I felt like them failing to catch anyone was kind of part of the themes. But in any case, they failed to connect the dots. Right. And these cops are very competent. Yeah. But like you said, not Sherlock Holmes. They're not. Yeah. They're not super cops. Um, but again, like these ideas of observation, right? Like there's a great scene where Mark is watching Helen, but the cops are watching Mark. Right? Yeah, really good shot. Um, and the thing is, unlike some movies, this devotion to theme doesn't feel like we're being beaten over the head. Like, I think because they keep things so fluid and loose, it's not like a very specific thing that they keep hitting over. Yeah, us with it's like the theme of observation is so broad and they mm -hmm. don't lose the thread, mm -hmm. but they do kind of keep it all within the same area. Yeah. It's, it's less like feeling like a message being driven home and much more just that you're seeing the work of masterful artists ensuring that each part of this film supports the greater whole. It's like when you see a painting where, the color palette is well chosen or you read a poem where the rhyme scheme is really good. Right. Absolutely. Even to the point where like, sometimes there are some good lines and I, I think this speaks to the quality of the screenplay. Um, when Mark goes back to film, the cops finding the sex worker's body, mm -hmm. uh, someone approaches him and asks like, what newspaper are you from? And he says the observer, right? Yeah. Uh, there's another moment where the psychologist, psychiatrist on set is like, oh, you have your father's eyes to mm -hmm. mark. Like very, very interesting things that like tie in with the themes, but they also like are otherwise throwaway lines. Yeah. And stuff that sounds like normal things people would say. Absolutely. Right. But yeah, everything here is on point. I think that it's interesting to think about the critical reaction to this movie, both the initial very negative reaction and the later more nuanced reaction. Uh, this is one of those movies that I think really invites analysis. Yes. I think if there's like any movie that is saying to you like, Hey, do like a Freudian take on this movie. Like it's this movie, right? Like you're talking about a film that's about like someone who became a killer because their overbearing father like photographed every moment of their life and even in their murderous psychosis they're still like carrying on their father's work like it's very right like you can absolutely put all of this kind of like film school analysis on this movie and what it's doing and how it's talking about its subject and really pull a lot out in a way that sometimes feels like you're maybe reaching on other movies but here it feels like no everything was intentionally here for you to discover absolutely which is wild to think about um in the context of like the other british horror movies that we've seen where sometimes it just doesn't feel like some thought is put in i know we'll get into this later as well but the reaction to this film when it first came out we kind of likened it in the context setting of like the audience being almost made complicit 
in the viewing and in these murders. But I think that there's another element here for why they would um, be taken aback. Mm. This film completely lambasts British culture Mm. um, around women and the female body. Interesting. I hadn't thought about that. The news shop, as I'll be calling it, it sells these like softcore porn photos under the counter, yet it's like windows both facing inside and out are covered with semi-nude ladies to kind of draw you into the news shop. And it's completely normalized. Like people walk by it. Um, Sometimes they'll stop and look, but otherwise they keep walking on. And I know British tabloids, even to this day, always have... uh, Page three girls. Page three girls. Yeah. I was thinking, I was going to use the term sunshine girls because there's a, I'll call it a tabloid, uh, the Calgary Sun here in Calgary. They have the sunshine girls where it's like a girl, uh, most likely a model posing in um, a bikini or, or something else. It's the same tradition. Absolutely. And that has been a long tradition in the UK it's it's wild this scene and it's so like innocuous which i think is why it feels so wild and why it feels like it's completely lambasting the culture so mark has come in to meet up with the news agent guy because he's here to take some photos um and then a customer comes in and the news agent guy is like oh sir like oh you're here to buy some papers okay cool and the guy is like yes do you also have any of those uh softcore porn pics so he says it in a like a code way. So he starts looking, and then in comes a young teen. Young teen girl. Yes. She comes in. The guy who's buying the porn pics kind of like turns away and like tries to hide what he's looking at. But the girl comes in. It's clear that she comes in frequently because the news agent guy kind of like recognizes her. I think he says her name. And she's like, Hi, mister, I'm just here to buy some gum. And like, he's like, yeah, take your, like, whichever one you'd like. And it's a completely normal interaction. And she's not like, oh man, those photos of women everywhere. It's completely normalized. Mm -hmm. And that is just like a microcosm of how the female body is seen in the culture is seen in this picture and in the culture of this time. But I think, you know, the, the significant thing here to me is that all the naked pictures are everywhere. It's all normalized. Everyone knows this guy sells porn, but no one wants to be seen buying the porn. Yeah, that's he the covers, thing, right? He, the pictures are put into a bag that says educational books, and then he even covers that with newspaper. Yeah, it's like everyone knows this is being sold here. No one bats an eye at any of it. No one judges that this exists. It's treated as like, yeah, of course this is a thing. But no one wants to be seen as the one who actually is consuming this media. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, which is, you know, I think this weird shame element that exists in our culture, like to this day, where it's like everybody knows. Everyone knows what Pornhub is. Right. But no one's going to admit to actually having it bookmarked on their internet browser <laughs> or whatever. Right. So I feel like the members of the audience are seeing themselves in this film in more ways than one beyond just the complicity of these murders. And I think this is also what kind of made me feel like this was akin to American Psycho. Mm. Um, You can see a line between this movie and American Psycho in looking at and putting yourself, yourself into the shoes of someone who is having a psychosis 
um, as well as a commentary on the culture. In terms of like some of the things that critics were taken aback by, I I think that the you know claims of disgust and that this film was like sadistic and that like it's an atrocity. Those are all kind of very overblown by today's standards. Everything in this movie is very tame. Uh, yes. We actually hardly see anything explicitly violent or sexual. There's, you know, one shot of some boobs and there's like one shot where you can kind of see some blood maybe. And that's about it. Mm -hmm. um, if anything, rather than feeling sadistic, you know, like that kind of hostile saw kind of genre of like, yeah, let's see the gruesomeness. Bleh. This movie feels really sensitive. It feels very like, um, very like understanding of the subject matter that it's showing. It's like very, um, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I feel like the most um, explicit in its violence that it gets is when Mark is committing suicide. Cause we actually see that on screen. Um, I will say it is quite something for a victim of a murder to be staring down the barrel of the camera mm -hmm. and breaking that fourth wall. Mm -hmm. I think that that is an element that um, might feel like it, that uh, impact is lost uh, in a little bit these days. Like, sure. cause we've had Ferris Bueller, you know, like we've had enough fourth wall breaking movies that mm. it doesn't have that same kind of impact that it might on an audience member of this time. So those deaths might feel more impactful than what we are possibly giving credit for. Sure. I think the, the thing is, is that like, if you want to identify the film as sadistic, mm -hmm. I think that says more about the viewer than the film, because the sadistic aspect was, is, you know, sadism is about taking pleasure in the pain of others. Uh, so to say the film itself is sadistic is to suggest that the film takes pleasure in showing us the pain of others. And I don't think that's true. But when you talk about these POV shots where we're like seeing the women dying from the point of view of Mark, which is the point of view of the camera, the only way the film itself becomes sadistic is if you are saying that viewers of those scenes are taking pleasure in watching that stuff. And that's more of a statement about the audience than anything else. I think that is what they're getting at, though, because I've paid my five bucks to go see this movie, and it kind of ties to Laura Mulvey saying, like, you know, you're there to take pleasure in viewing something. But, you know, everything in Peeping Tom is on theme. Yes. And if there's a aspect where the critics are right about some of this stuff, like, yes, this is a movie that's about voyeurism and psychology. But for me, at least, the thing that struck me the strongest is this is a movie about movies. Yes, it made a lot of sense why Scorsese would tie this with Eight and a Half, because that's a movie about making a movie. And you and I had a lot of fun with, like, some of the gags on set mm -hmm. that they have of, like, the director kind of throwing up his hands and, like, doing take after take after take and... The film is also having fun with that mm -hmm. uh, in those moments. What do you think it says about like the filmmaker? So this is a movie about the people who make movies. It's also a movie about the people who watch movies. Mm -hmm. And the movie absolutely makes you identify and sympathize with Mark. 
And that makes you really uncomfortable when he is murdering his victims. And that is absolutely on purpose. Yeah. And so there's this this two-way street here of the movie talking to the audience and the audience kind of talking back to the movie. And so the thing is that on some level, the movie feels like an accusation to its audience in the sense of like, hey, we're putting this stuff up on screen and we're saying that it's like fucked up to want to watch this stuff. But you want to watch this stuff, don't you? You, you paid, bought the ticket. You bought the ticket. But that accusation sort of invites the audience to turn that back on the filmmakers themselves, which is to say like, well, but you made the movie. Yeah. And when we look at Mark and the way he explains his motivations and the way that, you know, when he shows Viv around the studio and he's like talking about his passions and she's talking about how, you know, he belongs in the director's chair and stuff, or when he's talking to Helen and kind of explaining things to her and she's like, so taken in by how passionate he is about film and, and all of this, the movie feels like a confession on the part of the filmmaker, as well as an accusation towards the audience. The we, passion of making movies. Yeah. We feel like we're feeling a confession from the filmmaker. And, you know, when we're talking about like what matters to me is, you know, seeing these things on film and whatnot. And so it's a brilliant movie, but I can kind of see why it ruined Michael Powell's career because it's so easy when you watch it to start to equate Mark with filmmakers, with the director of this movie, the sympathy that the movie shows for him, the sensitivity that the movie shows towards him and his passion for film and, and you know, this medium makes it really easy to go like, well, you know, how is that connected to the director? What's the director telling me, Mm -hmm. right, about himself? And then the fact that Powell is playing the dad and things like that. Um, I mean, can you imagine how this would be received in today's climate when we have audiences who are frequently now confusing depiction for endorsement? Yeah, absolutely. Like I, we, I, we have now audiences who identify art with the artist, like so completely, right. Where it's like, well, you made a movie about a, a relationship with an age difference in it. That means the director's a pedophile. And it's like those kinds of conclusions people draw now, like totally out of nowhere. Can you imagine this movie being made where it's like showing sympathy for, a guy who is making snuff films. Mm -hmm. The scene with Mark and Viv, especially where he's directing her and kind of slowly directing her to her death. But before that, you know, he's like, stand here, move here, do this. Uh, And she's trying to like, be like, well, can you give me some direction? And he's just like, just do this and controlling her as a former filmmaker myself that scene left me feeling deeply uncomfortable. Why is that? Um, So there's a hierarchy on set Mm -hmm. that starts with the director and goes down. And that's necessary. I don't jive with people who are like, 
you know, that, that think you could run a film set as like a flattened power structure. Somebody needs to be giving the orders and leading the cats, hurting the cats, because there's just too much time and money at stake. But it does mean that directors have a kind of level of control over people that outside of like the military, human beings don't experience that much anymore. We don't live in like a feudal system and Mm -hmm. stuff anymore. But a director can be like, stand there, look here, breathe this way, say these words, uh, lift your arm. Like it's acting, it's pretending, it's you're creating a character in a film, but there still isn't anyone else who in your day-to-day life could be telling you how specifically to exist as a director does. And you felt uncomfortable because he was exerting that control or because of seeing that control. So the thing about that level of control is it can lead to power abuses. Yes. And there's lots of stories of those power abuses to the point where I think there's some people who think that film directing is like an inherently abusive thing, which is nonsense. There are just as many, if not more completely benign filmmakers, you know? Um, But in seeing this kind of shown on screen, this level of control leading all the way to like, she's a sitting duck for him to murder her made me feel uncomfortable because it made me feel complicit with what Mark was doing. Mm. It made me feel like, you know, I've had that level of power over someone before. And it made me think like, are there cases where I abused that power and I was maybe not aware of it? Is this like from looking from the outside in on that scene, it's a really disturbing scene. You know, I found myself thinking like, is like, this is something I love to do. I love directing movies. I love making film. I haven't been able to do it for a while. It's not exactly an easy art form to practice but nothing makes me happier. There's a lot of things in life that make me happy. I'm never happier than when I am on set directing. And I watch this scene and I look at what he's doing and I think, is this what the thing I love doing looks like Mm -hmm. on the outside to other people? And thinking, are you inherently kind of awful for doing this? this level of complicity that it brings. Similarly, like the scenes with Mark and Helen made me really uncomfortable. The way that she's kind of taken in by his level of passion for what he does and her sympathy for him. We know as an audience that like she's in danger. And one of the things that makes Mark sympathetic is that like he knows that Helen's in danger and tries his best to keep her out of danger with himself. He tells her, I'll never film you. He tells her, don't let me see you afraid because the fear is what turns him on, right? So that's to Mark's credit, but it's like watching her get taken in by this guy and his passion for film and not realizing what level of danger she's in with him made me think about the way that people have flocked to me because passion uh is attractive Mm -hmm. and the way that like 
have I put people in uncomfortable or unequal power relationships because they're flocking to me and attracted to my passion with something and I don't realize how much power that gives me over them. Uh, it's like it's like seeing this like dark reflection of yourself on screen, right? Okay. And that dark reflection, because of who Mark is, is a dark reflection of the filmmaker, which can come across as like a really damning um, indictment of filmmaking as a medium. This idea that like Mark was filmed his whole life, observed his whole life, and it's made him just totally fucked up and that, you know, he's obsessed with seeing other people through this camera. Um, but then also Mark watches the films back and is obsessed with that. And it comes off as a pretty in damning indictment of the audience. It comes off as a damning indictment of the relationship between audience and director. And so part of the hostility of critics towards this and of audiences towards this is yes, this hostility towards Michael Powell of kind of going like, oh, you, you're really, you must have been really fucked up to make this movie and kind of rejecting him. But I think the other thing that makes critics and audiences hostile towards something is the feeling that they're being criticized as well. And if you're a film critic and your job is watching movies all the time, I think you could feel attacked by this film. I think as an audience member, you could feel attacked by this film. Yeah, the whole thing, the whole way that this movie utilizes on purpose the stuff we were talking about in the intro about film subjectivity and the way that the film makes you and the director the same person in observation of the story. Like, it's doing all this shit on purpose. Yeah. The movie's making you uncomfortable on purpose. It's a horror movie. That's its job. So when I say that this movie makes me uncomfortable and I raise all of these difficult issues... It's a good movie yeah. for doing those things. Ben, um, I definitely hear what you're saying. I am curious, though, uh, for folks who haven't seen The Red Shoes, mm. the director of the play, of the ballet, is Anton Walbrook, who we've seen before. He's great. But he is a little obsessive with the control, mm -hmm. particularly of his lead ballet dancer. Mm-hmm. Did you feel this kind of uncomfortability about the control of a director over their object mm -hmm. in that movie compared to this movie? A little bit because I have worked in theater a little bit, but honestly not as much uh, for a couple of reasons. One is that the Red Shoes is makes... not a horror movie. Well, <laughs> the Red Shoes makes the fact that Anton Walbrook's character is not really a good person um, because of his level of obsessiveness and control. It's like not a secret. Mm -hmm. It's very clear about it. And we aren't really asked to sympathize with him that much. Our sympathies are mostly with Moira Shearer's character quite on purpose. Peeping Tom becomes uncomfortable because we are asked to sympathize with Mark. And we're shown that like, other than the thing where he has to murder women to get off, he's really quite a nice guy. Well, very pitiful as well. Yes. Um, and that creates like a different vibe mm -hmm. to the whole thing. 
but also um, I think that Peeping Tom becomes more powerful and more confrontational because even though the themes are the same, like you're totally right. Like those are, that's a through line by making this movie so much about movies and it's about camera and filming. It brings those themes closer to home and makes them much more close to the surface Mm -hmm. where you're drawing those direct lines. Um, You're at less of a distance, right? Yeah, I, I would agree. Is there anything else that you'd like to say about this movie? Well, we haven't seen Psycho yet. Correct. It's going to be in a month. So Creatures of the Night, mark your calendar. But this movie gets talked about as like the British Psycho. And it gets parallels drawn between it and Psycho a lot. And one of the things it talks about, like people like to talk about is like, Michael Powell did this and it ruined his career. Alfred Hitchcock did that and it sent him into the stratosphere successfully. And they're so similar. They both have these kind of murderers in them who, like spoilers for Psycho, are like these sensitive guys who had abusive backgrounds. I think this is a smarter, better, more complete film than Psycho. I've never seen Psycho in its completion. I've seen bits and pieces, so like I know what happens in it. I think it's a disservice to call this the British Psycho because mm-hmm. I see them as being very different. Yes. So, like, they might be similar in terms of who their main character is, but otherwise they feel completely different, which, I mean, we'll get into when we actually watch Psycho. I think that Peeping Tom cannot best Psycho for suspense. Mm -hmm. That's helped along by the fact that Norman Bates is not our POV character in Psycho the way that Mark is our POV character, quite literally at times, in Peeping Tom. But everything in Peeping Tom is on theme and connects. Whereas Psycho has a bunch of stuff that doesn't really connect thematically on the whole, where you kind of, if you are a film critic, you have to do a bit of that overreaching to try and make things add up. That doesn't take away anything from Psycho in terms of making it like a bad movie. A lot of those things that don't connect are just there to enhance atmosphere or mood. We're not talking about Psycho, but I think that Peeping Tom is much more intelligent and put together and everything's on point here in Mm -hmm. a way that I really value Um, as a filmmaker, as a film critic, my idea of a good director is someone who ensures that every part of the movie is working together towards the greater whole. And that's what I see in Peeping Tom. My only drawback from this movie um is that i wish we had understood the mom more psychologically oh sure yeah she's Um, she's clearly got a lot of interesting shit going on with her yeah she's clearly like mentally unwell um her scene with mark was very dynamic but it was also a little confusing Mm -hmm. i think it was supposed to be confusing but i just wish we had a little bit more understanding about the mom but i completely understand why we don't because She's in two, three scenes. I think also Mark doesn't understand her. Yeah, exactly. And we are Mark, basically, right? And I think a big part of why Mark doesn't understand her, again, thematic, she can't see and his whole deal is seeing. And so that renders her kind of this like total mystery to him. 
But there's all these fascinating things about her that come out in hints, like her alcoholism is clearly very bad. Um, And there's little things, like the movie doesn't draw a ton of attention to it. In most of her scenes, she's fairly lucid, but like she'll be halfway through a drink and be like, oh, Helen, like by the time you get back here, like make sure you're back in this room by the time I'm finished this drink I'm halfway through. Helen will leave. She downs the whole drink and then refills it to the level it was at like getting extra drinks in. Um, When we find out the house is wired for sound, that's the one time we really hear her like totally sloshed. But we find out that like she's blind because of like a botched surgery. She's just got like tons and tons of bitterness in her. She follows her instincts. Mm. And that is something that cannot be observed. Right. Um, So yeah, I would love to have gotten more about her, but it's also like not her movie, right? Yeah. So like I said, it would have been nice, but I totally understand why. But otherwise, yes, I completely agree that this movie is a must see, ironically. (laughs) (laughs) So let's move on to ranking. Um, Ben, I have a, uh, a spot. Oh, interesting. Where are you looking? I've got a range. Okay. Um, My range is fairly big it's 16 spots okay but it's also all in the top 20 okay so i don't think peeping tom is better than gojira i don't have a lot of follow-up that's just sort of a sentence that has a period at the end of it i don't think peeping tom is better than gojira i think that gojira is talking about the trauma of a nation and the way that we as a planet need to reconcile with the trauma of that nation. And I just feel like keeping Tom and the way that it's talking about film and the kind of violence that film does upon women, it doesn't quite compare. I don't think this is better than Gojira. But right below Gojira is The Fly. And The Fly is good. (laughs) But like, I don't think that, hey, wouldn't it be fucked up if I had the head of a fly and you had to kill me can compare to what Peeping Tom is doing. So I think that between three and four is where I started looking. And then I wanted to have a bit of a range. So I was thinking like, okay, well... The thing about Peeping Tom is that it's good, but I could certainly understand if you were a big horror movie fan and I said, well, Peeping Tom is one of the best horror movies of all time. And you went and you watched it and you were like, is that all? Mm -hmm. I could understand that reaction because of the way that Peeping Tom isn't really all that explicit, especially for its reputation. When you hear that like critics wanted it to like to be burned and stuff and thrown down the sewers, like you're kind of expecting it to be a bit more, I think, graphic than it is um also the way that as you said like the entire genre of like criminal profiling psychological serial killer thing i was talking describing peeping tom to someone else earlier and we were talking about it and i said like this was really shocking for its day but now this is every second episode of csi kind of thing in terms of the content so i could totally see someone watching this and going like i don't like what's the deal And so for that reason, for the fact that it it maybe isn't as explicit, I was like, okay, well, maybe it's not as good as some of these other movies. And I went down the the range 
And where I stopped was La Diabolique, which I think is kind of comparable in some ways as a like sure very well-made artistic kind of movie in this genre. And I think that maybe La Diabolique could be better. You might find it to be a better horror movie. Um, but right below La Diabolique is Frankenstein and Peeping Tom is better than Frankenstein. It just is. So that's my range, four to 20. Okay. Where were you looking? Well, first I'm going to ask you a question, Ben. Mm-hmm. How much of your favorability towards Gojira mm-hmm. is because you've seen that movie countless times and there's a strong like nostalgia and emotional connection to that movie, to the character uh, that is not there slash is there in a negative sense with Peeping Tom. I don't know. I think that Peeping Tom holds back at some points in the movie when I wish it didn't. Okay. And for all its reputation is like having gone too far. I actually think that Powell doesn't quite have the guts to do what needs to be done at certain points in the movie. Specifically, I think that even though Mark's suicide is the one death we actually see on camera, it's kind of not as good as it could be. Uh, The way that it's this very like stage play, like I'm just going to walk past the pointy thing and it'll be on the other side of me from the camera and I'm going to hold my throat like ah, 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 and fall down really sucks. And then he's like bloody in the next shot. That shot where he impales himself, we should have been the camera for that. That would be neat. Um, It is uh, a bit like a wide shot, so it doesn't feel as intimate as all of the others. I think in lieu of us being the camera for Mark, we should have seen Viv's full death so that we could feel the disappointment from Mark that it wasn't fully captured. If we weren't from the camera's point of view for Mark's death, alternatively, we should have been Mark's point of view and been just like, the camera going at that sharp pointy stick towards the other camera. Sure. Either way, I think that there are things that Peeping Tom holds back on in a way that Gojira doesn't hold back on. Sure. I think that's very fair. Because my spot was potentially number one. Ooh. I felt like the psychology and the way it was discussed put it above cat people. Mm, And I thought that the discussion around the culture was comparable to Jekyll and Hyde. Oh, sorry. Jekyll and Hyde. It's been a while. Yeah. So I was looking at either replacing number one or at least becoming the new number two. Gojira's number three. Mm -hmm. I absolutely see what you're saying. I think that Peeping Tom is a really really good movie i think that it could be better as a horror movie and i think that for all of the cries that it goes too far that it engendered at the time i actually don't think it goes far enough you do feel like there are some gloves on Mm -hmm. during parts because of that like I don't know. I feel like this isn't disingenuous, but because of the like goal of art Mm -hmm. on the part of Powell. Yeah. um, 
there's also just the fact that like even though these british critics were like this is far too upsetting to be a british film like what accent this is uh (laughs) powell himself as a british filmmaker still feels like reticent in that way i don't know which feels to me more like an indictment of british critics and film goers i think uh, so of the time than anything else well because like think about all of the other british horror movies we've seen where Mm -hmm. it's like monocles popping off because someone stepped out of a painting yeah right yeah. like my word yeah they mentioned the word knife yeah i i always think about the fact that like you know hitchcock was british but he came to america he came to america yeah he was like these brits get out of here um so i i definitely see what you're saying about gojira i think it is wrong to put the movie low uh like where you were looking because we see it so frequently these days like you said this is like every second episode of law and order or csi or whatever that is not this movie's fault because we are looking at this as the genre develops right Mm -hmm. um yeah that's antithetical to the uh modus operandi of the podcast yes um so i think I personally feel like this should go above Gojira, but I understand what you're saying about how far it goes. So at the very least, I think it should go in at number four, putting down the fly. But I do think that there is something here that would put it above these other movies, these top three. Totally. And I think it's really exciting to be talking about a movie going at the number one spot. The thing I love about Peeping Tom is that everything in it is being done on purpose. Yeah. And that is the mark of the best films. You know, if you're watching a Kurosawa film and the wind is blowing, it's because Kurosawa wanted the wind to blow in that shot. And that's just, I think, not quite something you can say of the movies lower than Gojira on this list. I will say, part of the reason why Gojira is below Jekyll and Hyde and Cat People is because it focuses on the nation. Mm -hmm. It's a very wide scope. It does bring it down with that love triangle, but we really applauded how intimate cat people and Jekyll and Hyde made the horror. Yes. I think that the horror in Peeping Tom is this kind of, comes from the identification with Mark Mm -hmm. and this horror of, is there something dark inside of me and what do I do about it? And can I stop it before it's too late? And has it already poisoned my relationship with other people? And is there a way to salvage that and myself? Or do I just kind of give in to these self-destructive qualities? And cat people has that with Irena. Uh, Jekyll and Hyde has that. Uh, But in Jekyll and Hyde, even though there's that aspect of it, the thing that remains the most powerful in that is the way that Hyde treats people and the hypocrisy that that renders unto Jekyll. And in Cat People, we see the effect that Irena has on uh, her love interest in that movie whose name is escaping me at the moment. Landing McFlandington. Yeah. And the tragedy of that. 
the tragedy in Gojira of Serizawa killing himself. And I just think that the ending of Peeping Tom from when he kills Millie to the end feels a little rushed and that it could have been stronger. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm really reluctant to go above Gojira here. Okay. Um, but I'm also not going to go lower than that. So if we're okay with that. Sure. Okay. So then entering the list at the new number four is Peeping Tom from 1960, directed by Michael Powell. Phew. Woo. Been a while since we've been this high. Mm-hmm. Uh, Well, folks, if you would like to check out this list, you can go to our website, ScreamScenePodcast.com. There you'll find links to all of the episodes that we have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our Ask box on Tumblr, or you can reach out over email at ScreamScenePodcast at gmail.com. Dream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can subscribe to the show using our RSS feed. You can help the show out by leaving us a rating or a review. Tell your friends about the show, whether it's through social media or straight in-person talking like the old days. (laughs) And if you'd like to help support the show financially, you can do so by heading over to patreon.com slash scream scene podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. We really appreciate everyone who's signed up for our Patreon over the years and the support that you give. It really helps with feeling like there are, you know, people who enjoy this show and appreciate it. And uh, yeah, we really appreciate all of you. The poll for June's horror adjacent bonus episode is up and uh, I think we're going to call it right now. So <laughs> Ben, you're not going to believe this. Hmm. There were, you put like 20 picks 15, on there. Yes. 15. Okay. Well, uh, we have a tie. Okay. Rebecca uh-huh. and clue. Okay. Two very different movies, very different movies and very horror adjacent in very different ways. Yeah. So what I think we'll do is June's movie will be Clue and Rebecca's pretty gothic gothic. So I can cover that in a uh, gothic retrospective. Okay. So, you know, we're still bowing to the demands of our patrons, Um, but this way we're dividing the work a little bit. Okay. I think Clue is going to be an interesting episode because I think I might upset some people. Oh, no. What are we watching after Clue? Uh, after that, Sarah, we are headed to the next, uh, the final in the three films in Anglo Amalgamated's Sidian trilogy. Oh. Uh, we are watching Circus of Horrors, which uh, <laughs> probably won't be as good as Peeping Tom. Probably not, no. but okay. So we'll see you for Clue then uh, in our next episode and Circus of Horrors in our next regular episode. See you then, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.